Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for November 29th, 2021. This is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, the new transition closet in Fayetteville serves trans youngsters seeking gender-appropriate apparel and more. So that even if they don't find clothes here, we teach them how to find clothes other places and how to find clothes when they go thrift shopping for themselves. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Frolick has that story in our second half hour. And in about four minutes, as we move into peak holiday shopping, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth asks questions about the status of supply chains. The Arkansas Department of Health is counting nearly 1,200 new cases of COVID-19 in the past three days of testing. During that same period, just one additional death from the virus has been added to the state's total. Governor Asa Hutchinson says he's pleased 5,000 additional vaccines were administered yesterday. The governor tweeted yesterday increasing the vaccination rate is important as new variants of the virus emerge. A new national report shows foreclosure rates in Arkansas are among the lowest in the country. The firm Adam Data Solutions, based in California, places Arkansas 42nd on its October list of the rate of foreclosures across the country. The tracking indicates 66 foreclosures in Arkansas in October, one for every 20,000-plus units. The state's October rate is 10 percent below the September rate and 7 percent below the October 2020 foreclosure rate. Arkansas is expected to receive between $4 and $5 billion through the federal infrastructure bill signed into law earlier this month. This week on Arkansas PBS, Executive Director of the Arkansas Good Roads Foundation, Joe Quinn, said much of the money is earmarked for transportation needs. It's $3.8 billion for roads and bridges, $244 million for public transportation. Uh, there's money to start to really think about and build an electronic vehicle charging station infrastructure in the state, $117 million for airports, $23 million for safety. Quinn said the bill will allow states to apply for additional federal funding through grants. According to Quinn, the guaranteed funding provided through the new law will allow agencies like the Arkansas Department of Transportation to do more effective long-term planning. The Arkansas soccer season is over after the number seven Razorbacks lost to number four Rutgers on penalty kicks in New Jersey Friday night. Arkansas ends up just shy of its first ever soccer Final Four appearance. The Arkansas volleyball season will continue with play in the National Invitational Volleyball Championship Tournament. The bracket was announced yesterday and after a first round bye, the Razorbacks will play either Stephen F. Austin or Jackson State. And there is a new date and time for the Eureka Springs Basin Park Christmas tree lighting. It will now take place Friday evening at 5.30. That's right before the Eureka Springs Christmas Parade. This is Ozarks at Large. The holiday shopping season is in full swing, and consumers are facing possible backlogs and shortages on products from books and paper to microchips. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth recently sat down with Stephanie and Rod Thomas, both professors of supply chain management at the University of Arkansas, to talk about what's causing the backlogs and how the pandemic may change the supply chain permanently. So can you just sort of walk me through... 
Where we are right now in terms of supply chain, I know there are a lot of bottlenecks and a lot of the focus has been on ports and shipping containers. From your point of view, how is this year or where we are right now different than this time last year or even this summer? We've had a lot of uncertainty. We've had a lot of empty shelves and people are thinking everything's coming back. The reality is supply chains were actually moving a lot more. We're coming out of times where companies had to put their facilities on hold because of uh, shortages of products, shortages of supplies, shortages in workers. And there's this ripple effect of it takes a while to get everything geared back up. At the same time, a lot of people have thought, you know what, this shopping from home stuff is really awesome. And so we're increasing what we've actually purchased They're predicting that consumer demand is going to continue to go up, which is great. But that also means when we've already kind of had some volatility in the supply chain, we found ourselves in a very interesting situation that the least little thing is causing major problems, which is what you're seeing when you see all the boats off the port in uh, Long Beach and L.A. A lot of it is demand driven. So what we buy has changed a lot. We've moved from a service-based economy in a lot of ways back towards a goods-based economy. So you're seeing like record sales and home improvement. People aren't going out as much, so they've been upgrading their homes, or they're not going out to eat as much, so they're buying more kitchen utensils and things like that. So you're seeing what used to be top-selling items in some categories are now things we have way too much inventory of because people don't buy them as much. And the new top-sellers are where we're starting to see some supply issues. To Stephanie's point, we're moving more through supply chains than we ever have. It's just a different mix of products. And when you shift that mix very quickly like we have, that causes disruptions throughout a supply chain. You know, We call it a chain because it's a series of steps or activities that have to happen in order to get us the products we need. And like any chain, we pull products through the supply chain that way. But anytime one of those breaks, it causes problems. Um, A link might break and we don't know it for three months because there's already inventory in there. But then you come back to it when COVID first hit. Imagine that first region that was hit by it. If a manufacturing facility shut down for four weeks, that added four weeks of lead time onto products we were going to get. But we wouldn't have even felt that for a couple months because all those links in that chain take a couple months to get us products. And then you get the shifting factor where, okay, maybe the factory was back online, but then people at the port got sick. So you added a couple of weeks there for them to get it right. And then the port on our end was backed up. So you have all this product and a lot of the containers out of balance throughout the world. So we constantly had stops and goes, stops and goes, along with changes in our buying patterns. And each supply chain is built for specific products. So if you change overnight and we change that demand pattern that quickly, you got to give these supply chains time to catch up. And then let's look at the the shopping season that's coming up, like you you were talking about, Stephanie. Um, I have seen like more places or people saying, "Oh, this is a good shop locally. It's a good opportunity to to buy more American made products or uh, a shift towards that." Have you seen that kind of shift, and, and is that still impacted by the supply chain? And still, you know, what are the ripple effects there? It's absolutely still going to have um, an impact, but even. Local businesses have global connections. And so they're, in some cases, local businesses are in being hit harder because they may not have the same buying power or the same connections and, and, and resources that the larger companies have. So while 
absolutely, it's great to support local. They may not be able to support you with just what they have access um, in terms of products. I think you're going to continue to see more companies that try to offer incentives to encourage people to buy early. Uh, You know, last year, I know because they wanted to encourage not a lot of people in stores at one time, kind of spreading out that Black Friday of doing more um, discounts and incentives and stuff earlier to spread some of that out. Um, Whether or not consumers go along with that is going to be interesting to see. The other change we need to make long term If you put all your eggs in one basket, you are accepting more risk. What we have done, supply chains throughout the world have done, we tend to source certain products in certain industries from one location in the world, and it's just risky. If something happens to that location, it causes more severe supply chain problems. You might remember, I want to say six months ago, where a lot of the meatpacking plants in the U.S. were having problems. We still were able to get beef, pork, chicken. Maybe we couldn't get the type of chicken that we wanted, but it was still available. Here's why. There were multiple meatpacking plants. We had multiple sources of supply. And even when one went down for three or four weeks, the other ones were still operating. And then when they got hit by COVID, somebody else could pick up the slack. Unfortunately, a lot of our products, think about microchips right now, that's the whole world goes to one location to get the vast majority of microchips. And go figure, when they have capacity issues or something comes up or COVID or anything like that, the whole world experiences problems. Long term, I think you will see more what we call nearshoring and reshoring. So hopefully we bring back some manufacturing capabilities here domestically to the U.S. or at least closer locations, Mexico, Canada, South America, whatnot. Because again, the longer you make that chain, the more links in it, the more complicated, the more risk you're taking on. And we've been agnostic to risk for the last couple of decades in supply chains. It's a trade-off between cost, service, and risk. And we've assumed very little risk or just assumed it wouldn't happen in order to drive down costs, in order to be in stock and have really good service. That's why we are where we are right now. As consumers, we're spoiled. We're used to having full shelves of everything at very low prices. We demand now in an Amazon-type world I want instantaneous access to everything, and you better ship it to me within two hours. That didn't exist 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Everybody's hearing about supply chains and all these problems. We're moving more through them than we ever have. And yeah, there are some items that we're out of stock on. The vast majority, we're still fine. And we still have much better service and much lower prices than what we did a generation ago. Well, and we've shifted some of that labor, too, because you know now how many people are ordering groceries online or doing pickup of, you know, a a purchase from a retailer that ordinarily they would have, I'm going to go just pick up a TV that I've ordered online instead of having to go in and and pick it out or or something. Well, now you need people in retail stores filling orders that we used to do as consumers. And so companies are having to figure out how do I shift my labor force to create this flexibility so that consumers can get products whenever they want to, however they they want to, but yet maybe those people are now filling orders instead of stocking shelves. And so you, that's where you've seen a lot of uh, retailers have done more of the when they were closing or opening later and doing using overnight to restock shelves because during the day, they didn't have the time to do that because they're filling orders for those drive-up groceries and, and those type of programs, too. And what you're saying there, a lot of that ties into those shifting demand patterns. I don't know if you remember, probably 
little over a year ago when the pandemic really started hitting us. You saw these stories in the national news about farmers were dumping milk up in the Midwest. Well, it wasn't that we were drinking less milk as a society, and we were still drinking milk from grocery stores that we bought at Walmart or Kroger or whatnot. It was a lot of the milk-based products for restaurants. Well, that was a different supply chain, right? So you go from this high-level demand in restaurants, because we all used to love to go out to eat, literally overnight, that went away. So you had this supply chain all geared up to meet that demand. That goes away. And some of that shifts to the grocery stores. And now a year later, we're starting to go back out to eat. And we're going to ask that same supply chain, okay, just kidding. Please ramp back up. I know you you left us for a year, but now we want you to instantaneously get us right back up to where we were. It takes time to build those things. Yeah. And, and you know, like you were saying, I think from a consumer side, you know, for the past, what, couple of decades, we've been conditioned to – uh, to go to these one sources and to, you know, the supply chain was the invisible hand. It worked behind the scenes and we didn't think about it or notice it. What are some things you think that people today, some myths that they have about the supply chain or, or something that they just don't understand uh, that you think people should know? There is no such thing as free shipping. <laughs> that's, that's what Mike is, but there's shipping, it's free. And I'm like, no, no, it, no, it's not. We have to pay for that um, somewhere. That's one of my big, big pet fees. You drew. Expand on that. Nothing is free. So when we get that instantaneous shipping, there's a cost to that. There's a transportation premium. To get Amazon to ship us something overnight or Walmart Plus to ship us something overnight, that meant somebody had to do something in a less than optimal way in the distribution center because they dropped everything and they went and picked your specific order to get it on a truck by 5 o'clock so it got to you. Um, a lot of what we've been conditioned to do, a lot of this home delivery, there's an extra cost to that. Whether they're charging you or not, there is an extra cost to that. And I think long term... We need to wrap our arms around. We love this convenience as U.S. consumers. There are costs to that. A lot of these companies have been eating that cost for a long, long time. Whenever we have to start actually paying the cost of two-hour delivery to our homes, the true cost, not what they give us, but the true cost of that, you're going to see massive price increases. There's a reason. You go back through the financials and look at Amazon over the decades, there's a lot of times where they didn't make money. And when they have been making money, a lot of times it's Amazon Web Services. It's not the retail arm. right? It's, it's not cost effective for me to order, order deodorant, a $2 stick of deodorant, and they sell it to me for $2. But really, there's a $7 shipping cost on top of that that they're not charging me if I'm a Prime member or if I buy a certain volume. All those hidden costs, they exist. You might not pay them yet eventually they're going to make their way into the cost of goods that we're buying. And I think the other thing that people sometimes don't think about with that is um, all those decisions for that convenience, um, they do have a sustainability impact. You know, increased packaging, you know, increased number of trucks on the road and and the impact there. There's just a lot of um, additionals there that I don't know that a lot of people, the convenience has overridden the fact of, are we really having a really long-term negative impact on, on the environment? And then, you know, looking forward to the next couple of years as we hopefully, you know, crawl out of the pandemic at some point, um, you know, what are some things that people need to look for 
when they're thinking about the supply chain, when they're going to stores, when they're buying something, um, going either online or a physical retailer, you know, what what should people know? I think in thinking through a purchase that you make in the broader global context of, you know, is this something I really need? Is this something, you know, what is the the long-term impact of me having somebody deliver a stick of deodorant, uh, you know, to my house? Or maybe, maybe I should think and go, okay, I know I want to order something from Walmart online. Maybe I only order once a month. And I, and don't get greedy on getting stuff here all at once because if I make those decisions and more people make those decisions, then together we can have a positive impact um, on the environment. You may see more labeling, product labeling. Right now we put nutrition labels on foods. We're doing some research now that will show if I tell you what the carbon footprint is going to be on a package that you get overnight versus if you're willing to wait 7 to 10 days, that will shift consumer behavior. And people don't realize if I tell them what the carbon footprint is of those two options, it changes their buying behavior. So um, Google Flights right now, if, I don't know if you've used that, but they're starting to put how many kilograms of CO2 are affiliated with each flight. I guarantee they're doing that because they're more environmentally conscious consumers out there. I think you'll get more supply chain related type of information. I could see there being more, where is this from? What type of employability record does this company have? That's going to become more of a standard of how was this product delivered to me? If it was involved in deforestation or pollution or contaminating groundwater, I don't want anything to do with that. And those are all those links in the chain. So I think some consumers are going to want to have a lot more of that information to make buying decisions. I think technology could continue to change things moving forward. Um, there's a lot of question marks, you know, what are, what's going to be the future of driverless trucks? Um, what impact is our drones actually going to have long-term, you know, uh, are we all going to have a 3D printer and whenever we need a part for our, you know, refrigerator or something, we're just going to print it out to replace it because we're going to get a notification on our computer that says hit print and you can take care of this issue. You know, we don't know. But I think there's still a lot of potential for a lot of different technologies to um, continue to revolutionize kind of how we do day-to-day life. I'm going to say the same thing I said last year. Thank the people delivering your packages. Thank a truck driver. Thank a forklift operator. Thank people that are working in a factory to get you the products you need. The amount of stress that they've been under, the conditions they've had to work under, most of us can't fathom. And just appreciate how lucky we are to have what we're getting for the relatively low prices, the great quality, the service levels, all that wraps in. People are doing that for you. And those individuals are really, really important. Because without them, we don't get the products that we want or need. Without them, we don't have food and water and medicine just the basics, let alone the iPhones and Xboxes and all the other gadgets that we don't truly need. That was Stephanie and Rod Thomas, professors of supply chain management at the University of Arkansas, talking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. Still to come on our show, a new trip through the Prior Center archives. But I campaign for him every waking moment. Anything that needs to be done, I am there. I am happy to do that. All anybody has to say is this is what we need. 
Randy Dixon with the Pryor Center brings along sounds of Virginia Kelly, the self-nicknamed First Mom. That's in about three minutes on Ozarks at Large. It's time for the annual KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway, your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Pack Rat Outdoor Center, Community Creative Center, Westwood Gardens, and more. Winners announced on Friday, December 10th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration available at KUAF.com. Aurora, Arkansas Statewide Organ and Tissue Recovery and Registry Agency, is a lifeline for the 100,000-plus Americans and 300-plus Arkansans waiting for an organ transplant. The simple act of registering to become an organ and tissue donor is available at the DMV, online at aurora.org, and on smartphone health apps. A-R-O-R-A dot org for more information. Governor Asa Hutchinson says President Joe Biden should do more to address the nation's economic problems. That's despite some promising economic indicators nationwide, including record low jobless claims and rising wages. Speaking on CNN's State of the Union yesterday, Governor Hutchinson said despite the positive news, the president should do more to address the nation's most pressing economic matters. But our pressures on inflation and on the supply chain, particularly energy, is something that he needs to correct. And so there's problems that he needs to address. And uh, we all want to come out of this. He puts it all on COVID. And I don't believe that is the biggest, well, it is a challenge, but uh, there are other things you can address, such as the inflationary pressures that he can control. The governor cited Arkansas's unemployment rate of 3.7%, which is lower than it was before the COVID-19 pandemic began. The governor also called on House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to condemn racist remarks by Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert targeted at Minnesota Democrat Ihan Omar. I think whenever even in our own uh, caucus, our own members, if they go the wrong direction, I mean, it has to be uh, called out. Uh, It has to be uh, dealt with. Uh, particularly whenever it is uh, breaching the civility, whenever it is crossing the line in terms of violence or, or, or increasing the divide in our country. Representative McCarthy has also failed to condemn Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar for tweeting an animated video apparently depicting himself killing a Democratic colleague. I'm Scott Tong. In a new book, Bloomberg reporter Peter Robison argues that a shift in corporate culture at Boeing led to two deadly crashes. The approach is to focus on moving manufacturing overseas and outsourcing, taking a huge chunk of the profits of the company and delivering them straight to shareholders. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now, this afternoon, beginning at 1 on KUAF. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere, by using the KUAF app. Nobody knows him like his mother. And it bothers me a lot when somebody questions his integrity, his honesty. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm going to tell you about Randy Dixon with the Prior Center in just a minute. But first, Randy Dixon's going to tell us what we just heard. That was a mama talking about her son uh, who happened to be president, our 42nd president of the United States. So that was Virginia Kelly. Virginia Kelly, the subject of this week's Pryor Center archives that we're going to be hearing from. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Comes to us most Mondays. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. Yeah. All it's right. a good holiday. Yeah, good, good. Tell us about Virginia Kelly. Well, she, uh, of course, was born 
uh, in Arkansas. She was actually born in Bodkaw. I've never heard of this. No, it's in Nevada County. It, uh-huh. It's got to be a tiny little place, but it, she was born June 6th of 1923. And I thought was most fascinating about her. She outlived three husbands. Wow. Yes. And um, one of them uh, was Bill Blythe. She gave birth to uh, his son, who became Bill Clinton. Right. Um, he was actually killed in a car wreck three months before Bill was born. And then she remarried and married a car salesman named Roger Clinton, who brought his son, Roger, into the family. And he was not a good guy. No. He was an abusive alcoholic, and um, he... Uh, he ended up dying of cancer in 1967, and she married twice more, but Bill Clinton took uh, Roger Clinton Sr.'s name. Right. So that's that's where that lineage all you know comes from. That's why but, he wasn't President Bill Blythe. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so let's just talk about her. She, you know, lived in hope— moved to Hot Springs, and um, she was always supportive of her son, loved her son, always talked about, um, well, both of them. Sure. But uh, he, uh, she was always involved in his campaigns. Um, you would see her every time he filed. As a matter of fact, she filed for him uh, a few times huh. in his absence, and she was always there. I would always see her on election night. She was always, you know, Roger was there, and she was there, and, of course, Hillary, and they they would always gather, you know, at the podium. You re, you remember the, yeah. the, you know, the pictures, but um, here, here she is talking about campaigns. But I campaign for him every waking moment. Anything that needs to be done, I am there. I am happy to do that. All anybody has to say is this is what we need. Virginia Kelly, the subject of this week's uh, archives that we're listening to from the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Okay, um, this little next bit that you're giving, I had forgotten about this next bit. Well, I had too. And, uh, you know, she never really got involved in the politics of things. Uh, she was always just very happy and uh, very complimentary of her son and talked about family. Well, this is a different issue. Uh, this was during the 92 campaign, and it was September, so it was late in the presidential campaign. And so just before the election, it was discovered that the CIA had been investigating Clinton's passport records, also Perot's. But, oh, right. but they were uh, investigated, and at the same time, they were looking into Virginia Kelly's, and she was not not happy about it and appeared on ABC's Good Morning America. Bill Clinton's mom, Virginia Kelly, says she can't think of a single reason why the government would order a search of her passport records. But according to a report by The Washington Post, that is exactly what the State Department recently did. The Post says that in conducting a search for Governor Clinton's passport files, State Department officials also looked for his mother's records. Reportedly, in neither case did they find anything amiss. 
although the State Department has admitted it made a mistake in the way it handled the search through Clinton's files. So far, it has neither confirmed nor denied searching for Mrs. Kelly's records. It has, however, ordered an investigation. The Clinton campaign, though, is calling the search a monumental abuse of power. And yesterday, Steve Fox spoke with Mrs. Kelly, who was at her home in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he got her reaction. I'm insulted. I'm indignant. You know, I'm of the age that I lived through Hitler and his Gestapo. I lived through the police state. I do not want this to happen to my country. Every American alive ought to be insulted by this behavior. We had a homecoming celebration in Hot Springs on September the 6th. In Bill's speech, he mentioned that soon we could expect attacks on his mother and his child. And I thought that truly he must be joking. He was not joking at all. Another thing that insults me is people like this that can sit in judgment of a fine man like Bill Clinton. It's disgusting. And that's just about all I have to say about this, Steve. In 1990, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she talked about it quite a bit, and she fought it for years. That's eventually how um, she passed. But um, right before the 92 election, she attended a Cancer Society gathering, and that was covered by KTV's Tom Ryan. The ACS, American Cancer Society, presented a distinguished group of physicians to those in attendance today, one of which the mother of presidential candidate Bill Clinton, who knows firsthand the trials of breast cancer. I developed breast cancer, was diagnosed two years ago in August, a little over two years now. and. Uh, my experience was um, it was picked up on a regular routine examination. And even though I'd had mammography once a year. Professionals who spoke today all agree breast cancer is making giant strides, but more research is needed. Even last year, we've come up with new drugs and new ideas about the treatment of breast cancer, and just things are progressing at uh, lightning speed, really. But there's so much we don't know, and I'm so happy to hear that the NIH has freed up some money, and hopefully we can get some more studies done. Virginia Kelly was at today's forum, of course, sharing her own personal experiences, but with her son less than 24 hours away from what is certain to be the most crucial debate in his political career. Understandably, her thoughts were in another state. My mind's in St. Louis, yes. My mind's in Kansas City and then on to St. Louis, yes. Uh, so she's now, you know, mother of the president-elect. As she said, first mom. Sure, sure. <laughs> so shortly after the election, KTV caught up with her and her home in Hot Springs. With all the pictures, newspaper clippings, and magazines strewn about the house, it's not hard to tell who Bill Clinton's biggest fan is. Decked out in what has been her typical dress for over a year, Virginia Kelly says she's still having a tough time believing that she's now first mom to the White House. I wake up every morning of my life and I think, is this really true? Something that we've worked so hard for, is it really true? As she reflects on the and year that flew by so quickly, one that has been full of its ups and downs, <laughs> Kelly says it wasn't until the day before the election that she finally realized everything was going to be okay. The most touching, moving thing that I think I've read in this campaign was as the minister prayed 
for his voice, for his leadership for the country and so forth. Bill had asked for spiritual prayer. And the background music was the choir singing. You didn't bring me this far to leave me. I wept, but it didn't worry anymore. It didn't worry. While Kelly says she isn't going to let being mother of the president change her, her life is already changing. She's being hounded by the press, and her mail is piling up. But Kelly says she's taking it all in stride, and her role of first mom will be played from Arkansas. And as far as dealing with politics on a much grander scale, Kelly says she'd much rather talk about family. I have no earthly idea about issues and positions and things like that. I, uh, I only know and want to talk about the personalities. But one area where Kelly says she will use some influence is trying to get the presidential retreat in her hometown of Hot Springs. Julie Coker, Channel 7 News. She was a fixture in Hot Springs, and her son, Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. was first chair saxophone player in the Hot Springs High School band. So right after he won the election and they were planning the inauguration, she wanted the Hot Springs marching band to be in the parade. Right. So she started a campaign to raise money, <laughs> and they invited her to come for a, for a rehearsal, and uh, they had her in the band room, and this is when we talked to her. You say people have already come to you and offered to help you? Yes, they have. They, yes, they have. They just heard about it yesterday, and they have come and asked, how can I give? And I asked them to wait until after today so I could find out how they can contribute. Don't worry, we're going to get the money. Is we're going to get it. Is there any reason that this was the first invitation to the extended to the ball? Well, yes, I think and so. Could you tell me why? <laughs> well, you know, Bill was a member of this band, and it was such a big part of his life. And ironically, yesterday I got a letter from Virgil Sperling, who was the band director for him at that time. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that they were one of the first to be invited. It doesn't surprise me. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and she she did it. Yeah. They came and they marched in the the parade in 93. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And those kids will talk about that forever. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, what an honor. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... Do you remember Person of the Week that used to be on ABC? Vaguely, yes. It'd be Every Friday, Fridays, they exactly. would, uh, Peter Jennings would close out the news and they'd right. name a Person of the Week. It might be someone famous, but it might not. Right. It might be someone who had done something for their community. Exactly. It might be a very famous rock star. Right, right. It, it would vary. Uh, it was someone that, that they deemed important enough mm -hmm. to close out the Friday Night News. Well, KTV copied that, of course, mm -hmm. being an ABC station. So this was uh, shortly after the election, and KTV made Virginia Kelly the person of the week. You've already heard it said, who would have thought that this youngster would grow up to be president of the United States? Well, one person who had an idea this youngster would make a mark was Virginia Kelly and her parents. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. My mother and father would be wild with excitement. 
but they wouldn't be surprised. They wouldn't be surprised at all. You wonder if they would have been surprised to hear their daughter on July 15th of this year at the National Convention in New York City. his mother in the Arkansas delegation. Now the eyes say it all. A long way from Hope, Arkansas. It's been a long road to this point for Virginia Kelly and her sons. In fact, she had to give up Bill to her parents for a year so she could go to nursing school. Kelly says the separation was not a concern. It was just the loneliness of being away from him. I just loved him so much. It, was, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It's very vivid in my memory today how I battled with myself to make this decision. And I've never really regretted it, and I don't believe that Bill has. If it did, you have to think it's been forgotten in light of recent events. Now, like most people in public life, the goal for the Kellys and the Clintons is to keep things as normal as possible. I like to have lunch with my friends on Friday. And I like to have lunch with my friends from the racetrack on Thursday. And I try to work everything around that. And it's just an additional time-consuming thing. But it's okay. I expected that. And it had her at the convention, and because that was a big moment, to have her nominate of course. her son. Of course. Yeah, yeah. She did not survive the first term, did she? Oh no, no! Yeah, was, uh, less than uh, she, less than a year okay. after um, he was elected, she died in her sleep mm -hmm. of breast cancer. President Clinton left the White House today to attend the funeral of his mother, Virginia Kelly, who died in her sleep early Thursday morning at her home in Hot Springs, Arkansas. The president boarded Marine One to be taken to Andrews Air Force Base to fly to Arkansas. We spoke with the president's mother in the summer of 1992, shortly before the Democratic National Convention. The conversation runs about 20 minutes. Top administration officials and even Barbara Streisand hmm. flew in. Hmm. Um, Virginia had gone to her one of her shows in Las Vegas just the week before. Oh, my. And... Streisand, who was a huge supporter of Bill Clinton, returned the favor and flew in for her memorial service. But um, I wanted to just throw this in. Uh, remember Betsy Wright? I do, yes. A long time aide uh, aid to, yeah. to Clinton and very close to her. This is what she had to say after the service. He learned a lot of, a lot of his traits came from his mother, but I think that the strongest one is his tenacity. And I think this country has watched a guy that they've declared dead or defeated many, many, many times in the last year, and they just didn't know that Miss Virginia raised him to never think that it was the, the end. And coming to his mother's funeral is a continuation of the lesson she taught him in tenacity. You just keep going. These archives come from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You can spend so many holiday hours searching <laughs> the Pryor Center website for these and things you don't even know exist. That's true. Yeah. All right, Randy. Good to have you back. Hey, it's great to be here. And uh, let's find some more uh, interesting things for the holiday season. I'm ready for it. Thank you, Randy.
Shiloh Museum of Ozark History in Springdale presents Seen Through Her Wardrobe, Glimpses of Annabelle Searcy. Annabelle Applegate Searcy was one of many women exercising their independence at the turn of the 20th century. Through journals, letters, photos, and more, her life is pieced together. ShilohMuseum.org or 750-8165 for information. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering apartments to village homes, plus a daily calendar of activities and events. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. Eight Arkansas universities will take part in a program from Forward Arkansas to bolster K-12 teacher recruitment, training, and retention in the state. The universities, including the University of Arkansas Fort Smith and Arkansas Tech in Russellville, will each receive $100,000 grants to participate in the Educator Preparation Program Design Collective. A statement from Forward Arkansas this morning indicates the collaboration will help Arkansas recruit more qualified teachers and better prepare those teachers for the challenges of the classroom. The 23rd annual Fayetteville High School Student Council Homeless Vigil is later this week. Students will be raising funds for the Families in Transition program Thursday evening from 5 to 11 on the north side of the Fayetteville High School building. Sweatshirts and hoodies will be sold with proceeds going to the vigil's fundraising total. The wins keep coming for the Razorback basketball teams. Both the women and men won games yesterday. The number 12 in the nation men defeated Pennsylvania 76-60 to improve to 6-0 this year. Last night, the women defeated Belmont 83-63 to move their record to 6-1. The men will next host Central Arkansas and Bud Walton Wednesday night. The women are at Central Florida Thursday night. And we do have college hoops in the area tonight. In Fort Smith, the UAFS men will host Southwestern Christian University. The Lions enter the game with a 3-2 and two record. With a crucial abortion case at the Supreme Court this week, we're taking a look at the history of Roe v. Wade. They saw it as a very important landmark constitutional decision, but had no idea that it would become so politicized and so much a subject of turmoil. I'm Audie Cornish. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today and every weekday from 3 until 6 on KUAF. And you can listen online at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Transgender youth often struggle with coming out of the closet to family and friends about their identities. And many may lack access to proper gender-conforming apparel and undergarments. But as Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, a transgender apparel consultant in Fayetteville is providing help not just to local youth, but to young people across the country in their transition closet. Amari Rausch operates a fitting room designed especially for transgender youth. Hi, I'm Amari with The Transition Closet. My pronouns are they, them, and I am the founder. Basically, I am transgender. I am non-binary, and um, when I was transitioning, I had this idea of getting a free closet together for people transitioning because basically transitioning is just really, really expensive. Youth transitioning from male to female, female to male, or non-binary, meaning a blend of genders or no particular gender, often lack resources and support when it comes to finding and wearing clothes, shoes, and undergarments. It often starts with kids trying on each other's stuff, usually at school. Um, Usually you work up to the Goodwill level to getting to thrift stores. 
Roush specializes in consulting with LGBTQ plus people who are mostly 18 years of age and younger. So that even if they don't find clothes here, we teach them how to find clothes other places and how to find clothes when they go thrift shopping for themselves. The transition closet, they say, is a secure space. Because they're told it's okay to play here with their gender. It's okay to play with their identity. They can try on a dress. They can try on some tights. They can try on a button-up shirt and a tie. They can do whatever they want in here, and it gives them that safe space to do so. Roush sweeps their hand across a rack of colorful clothes recently donated. One cool story that has come out of this is a lady um, by the name of Christy Walker donated her LuLaRoe. And then the rest of it is very, very beautiful, too. We have a lot of people's what we call dead clothes. And those are so like your dead name, which is your name from before you transitioned. Your dead clothes are your clothes from before your transition. This transition closet, turns out, is located inside Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville. It's very restorative for me. I had actually given up on churches before I came to Good Shepherd. Um, So this has been very restorative of my faith at churches that I'd been to before, ideas like this that I would have, they would never have followed me with it. And to have a church do this, it's wild. Um, it, It feels landmark. Roush first pitched the transition closet to Clint Schneckla, the cisgender husband, father, and pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. He made national news this summer hosting a week-long summer day camp for nearly 100 LGBTQ plus youngsters, where the closet was first organized, he says, by campers. What we discovered during the camp week was how much people just loved it, both because they could give away dead clothes, you know, clothes that they that didn't match their gender anymore. So it was a blessing to be able to get it given away, and then also for people to be able to try stuff on. Um, we made sure to get the closet together before queer can't happened. And one of the things that we noticed is the kids love to come play together almost in the closet. Um, there was a sharing of ideas. There was a sharing of experiences. Um, there was a sharing of knowledge, um, people comforting each other. There was tears. There was happiness. Um, it was so much. There was so much emotion to it. When trans and non-binary youth turn 18 years of age and older, some, not all, choose to have gender-confirming surgery. Until then, Rausch says, they seek to use compression garments, for example, to bind their breasts. Conventional chest compression garments are designed for men seeking to look svelte, so are really ill-fitting for transgender youth. And we want to just make sure that everybody is transitioning safely and comfortably and in a safe environment. And with the binders, we want to make sure that people are binding safely and using proper binding practices. The patented gender-confirming compression garments are sourced from Maryland-based GC2B, founded in 2015. GC2B operates a philanthropy donating newly sewn seconds to outlets like Roush's to distribute at no cost as a sponsor. Um, And they are one of the biggest um, binder companies in the U.S. Um, I think they are the biggest and oldest in the U.S., actually. And one of the things that they do is they take all their remakes, returns, mislabeled ones, and they donate them. And we are one of the places that they donate them to. 
This afternoon, Pastor Schneckloth prays over a new shipment of compression garments and, and just sense of arrived. Being and so we pray for each of them as they receive it, and we pray for those who are lovingly providing them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Rausch slices open the box to show us. So here are some of the chest binders, and they come um, bundled up together, uh, multiple sizes like this. Um, this one I pulled out is a large. I know it doesn't look large because it's a compression garment. Um, that's what they're meant for. They compress um, very, very much, and they compress the breast tissue down um, so that you appear more flat-chested. So for some people, that's so that they have a more masculine appearance. For some people, it's just so that they have a less feminine appearance in general. Roush's apparel consultations are free of charge by appointment and take 45 minutes to an hour using a special conversion chart. Like if you're this size in men's clothes, then you're this size in women's clothes. And we have a little chart for that that I've made to help out with it because it's very confusing. And so we do our clothing con consultation. We start there. And then we start by picking out a few pieces of clothing and seeing how those fit. Transition closets operate in a number of major cities across the country. So as far as clothing goes, we have served about 13 clients. As far as binders go, we have served over 200 clients all over the world. With a wait list of over 250, Spencer from Augusta, Kansas, no last name to protect his identity, is one of many out-of-state clients. I actually came across one of their videos actually on the social media site called uh, TikTok. And I um, messaged them and they're helping me out with the binder. It's hard, especially because there's not anywhere locally you can get them. You have to either get them online or if you get lucky, you find people that bless you like these people have blessed me was getting me, uh, sending me a, a binder. So my name is Kai. I'm 20. I um, discovered the uh, transitional closet on Facebook, actually. It showed up on my suggested, and I checked it out. And I've been needing a binder for the past few years, really. I had grown out of the one that I had initially um, the one that initially was like bought for me by one of my close friends because my family does not, in their words, condone my lifestyle. And I wait, I think it was like a week and a half, almost two weeks, and I had gotten my binder in the mail and I was really, really excited. And I have been wearing it for about two weeks now. Rausch is seeking nonprofit status for their transition closet to obtain grants and tax-deductible donations to serve trans youngsters in Arkansas and beyond. Um, we understand how expensive transitioning can be, and we want to just make sure that everybody is transitioning safely and comfortably and in a safe environment. And with the binders, we want to make sure that people are binding safely and using proper binding practices. And to help, Amari Rausch posts a secure order link, instructional videos, donation suggestions, and consultation signups on The Transition Closet on Facebook. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Tomorrow on Ozarks, we take note of Giving Tuesday. It kind of just makes me calm and um, relaxed. Kids with autism can be hyper, and it, this is calming and relaxing at the side of art. 
A lot of people who are homeless use bicycles as their main mode of transportation. Between bikes and public transit, that's how everyone gets around. Uh, so it was really cool to get to partner with Pedal It Forward. Just, I, I told everyone as we moved in, like, hey, Pedal It Forward wants to, like, donate a bike for every cabin. Um, some of the biggest demands that we have is food insecurity, utility assistance. Obviously, right now, rent and mortgage assistance is another big one. Um, but we see all kinds of needs. Stories of helping each other throughout our community on a special Giving Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. You can listen to the show anywhere, anytime by using the live stream feature that's included with the KUAF app, as well as the archived Ozarks at Large feature with that same app. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Arsegas, a family-owned and operated coffee roastery with five cafes in downtown and South Fayetteville. Arsegas offers carefully sourced coffee in small batches at their roastery in South Fayetteville. Coffee subscriptions are available at arsegas.com. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Van Buren. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, and KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's Ozarks at Large inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Contributors this Monday included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Frolick, and Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Additional content for today's show provided by the news team at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock in Central Arkansas. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We'll be back with a Giving Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7. Don't forget you can listen to Ozarks at Large on your schedule. All you have to do is either download or subscribe the free Ozarks at Large daily podcast. It's available through all major podcast distributors. It is absolutely free. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. Please take care of yourself. Get rest when you can. We'll talk again soon.